0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. I am joined today, as usual, by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey. Hey, guys. So let's get started. Don, what is your first story today?
0: Australia just had a an election, the result was pretty surprising to people. There'd been three years of polling and a lot of media narrative uh, uh, anticipating that the Labor Party was going to win. And in particular, that they were going to win crusading for a um, carbon emissions cuts and larger targets for renewable energy. And instead, what happened was that That was all rejected in favor of a liberal-led, center-right coalition, liberal-led in terms of the Australian Liberal Party, headed by their Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. And the implication is that voters were more concerned about lowering energy prices and increasing energy supply, in particular from uh, coal. And one interesting dynamic that I think has some lessons here is that in Australia, the left is losing the working class and has more and more become representative of the highly educated and high income earners. And I think we were starting to see at least some of that dynamic here where even labor unions have come out opposing the Green New Deal. And I think one takeaway for the US is that there's been increasing instances of people in the business community and among republicans that they need to get on board the climate change train and start supporting things like a carbon tax and i think that that is a mistake morally but that there's also reason to think that it's a mistake politically as well that if you actually have a pro-energy pro-progress agenda that that can be really powerful Particularly if you actually have a coherent stance on climate, which is one of the things we've urged people to develop.
1: So, is there anything specifically that they're doing in Australia that you take any lessons from in terms of um, messaging, anything like that?
0: I mean, I haven't seen the uh, followed closely the exact messaging that was used, but there, I mean, there was a real focus on cost. And I think sometimes this can be done poorly, but when people really have a sense of the price tag of restrictive policies, and if you'll recall a, a few years back Australia actually had i think it was a carbon tax or it might have been it was some form of um carbon pricing and that that actually led to a uh, change in government and repealing that um when people actually have a price tag on these things then you can have, I think, a winning argument, but the more vague it is that oh, this will be expensive, the less effective that seems to be.
1: I wonder in that country. Maybe you don't know this, but is there? It seems like with the the carbon tax and maybe with some of the reliability issues. But I'm just speculating. Maybe maybe they have they feel like they have familiarity of paying the price of those kinds of policies. Do you have any sense of that?
0: Well, I, yeah, so I mentioned two things that were relevant. So one was the price, but one was just the, um, having, a, an increased energy supply. And I think that goes to the point that they have struggled with, uh, what, you know, we've talked about in the past, some of the problems that they've had. And, um, I don't have a good sense of how much that is attributed to intermittent renewables, like their sense that we don't have reliable energy. Um, but there's definitely a dual concern, both with making sure we have available energy and making sure that it's affordable.
1: Yeah. Well, this, this makes me think about in the US awareness or lack of awareness of what the unreliables have done to energy costs. And one one point I've heard a couple of times, including in Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute's paper on, I think it's called the new energy economy and exercise in magical thinking. It definitely has magical thinking. In the title, he he talks about how in the U.S. there's very strong reason to believe that absent the unreliables, prices would have declined because the fuel costs, like the raw fuel costs in terms of coal and gas, which end up being something like fifty percent of uh, or twenty five percent of electricity cost, those actually went down significantly. So when you see prices going up everywhere. One thing that points to is that uh, the unreliables didn't just add cost, but they added cost to lower cost. And the the more that people can be aware, okay, forcing you to use unreliable fuels drove up your prices this much, and then it'll do it more in the future. We have every reason to believe it'll do it more in the future. Then then you're really making them, then you're really making people aware, at least partially, making people aware of of the trade offs involved, and then you can explain further, the trade-offs are actually much bigger because it's not just your your electricity bill, but it's it, it, when everyone's electricity bill is higher, that makes everyone less productive and that makes everything more expensive for you. Stefan, what's your first story today?
2: One of the concerns with uh, the US uh, fracking boom has been the uh, problem of methane leakage in uh, production of oil and gas. And uh, so that is that has previously been estimated to be relatively high and uh, be very impactful for the full life cycle assessment of uh, greenhouse gas emissions by burning natural gas. And a recent study published in uh, Geophysical Research Letters, Alan et al., 2019, um, now estimates significantly lower methane emissions from U.S. oil and gas development. And the study was a collaboration between the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, And the authors looked at air samples downwind of 20 oil and gas development projects in uh, the United States between 2006 and 2050. And I'll read a small part of the summary that they provide. Based on long-term and well-calibrated measurements, we find that, one, there's no large increase of total methane emissions in the United States in the past decade. Two, there's a modest increase in oil and gas methane emissions, but this increase is much lower than some previous studies suggest. And three, the assumption of a time-constant relationship between methane and ethane emissions has resulted in major overestimation of an oil and gas Emissions trend in some previous studies. So, essentially, when you look at the enormous production increase of oil and gas in America over the past decade, the modest increase in oil and gas methane emissions, of course, is quite surprising because that means that the industry actually did a really good job in containing these emissions. And uh, this is, of course, good news overall for the life cycle emissions assessment of every process that involves natural gas. And that's power generation, home heating, plastics manufacturing, vehicle fuel, and so on. Uh, so that's, that's quite important for the U.S. economy today. But I think it also in show, uh, shows some important points about the general discussion of emissions, so one thing we can derive is they are modeled estimates. So there's, in this complex situation, there's no direct measurement. It's not like, oh, we have this gas well, we will just put a meter next to it, and then we know how much emissions uh, uh, or leakage from of methane comes out of that. So these are modeled estimates, okay? And this is never conveyed in you know commentary or reports about this in the general media. It's just someone makes an estimate or brings out a paper, and this estimate then is, you know, shown as a sort of fact, like gravity. It's just there and it's real and it's a footnote and it's it's uh, reality. And uh, so, and previous estimates, as you also s- uh, said in the summary, overested methane leaks by making incorrect assumptions. So they had a certain assumption about. The uh, correlation between methane and ethane emissions from a from a gas well, and then they you know calculated their estimates from that. and so the authors now corrected for this uh, bias and uh, came to quite different conclusions compared to previous uh, estimates. and um, So the good news is that errors can be corrected in in estimates like this in the studies, so it's not all lost with academia. But we, you know, have to be very careful with all the assertions that are made, especially when things, you know, are not as mature in, in, uh, in studying, and particularly in the politically loaded areas. So the methane emissions of natural gas, of course, have enormous implications for U.S. policy. So if, if the general framework is, okay, the, the government has a goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions – in the power sector, then it's very important whether you have a, a, you know, a 2% leakage rate or a 3% leakage rate in natural gas, because that totally uh, changes the life cycle emissions of, you know, every process involved, you know, every pipeline project, every natural gas power generation project and so on and so forth. So
1: let me think. I mean, do you have strong reason to believe that this latest study has better methodology than earlier studies?
2: Uh, I think because they found a bias and corrected it. So it's of course I cannot, you know, take my own samples. That's that's clear. But it's uh so it's a long-term established the lead author is a long-term established uh NOAA employee, and uh, most of the co-authors come from NOAA. And so I have no reason to believe that they are somehow uh biased towards industry interests.
1: It's interesting, how, with these studies, you never hear, at least in the public discussion of them, the the confidence levels of them, including, okay, and part of that is there's not an indication of the methodology, and the assumption is usually that the methodology is some sort of perfect direct measurement. I mean, basically the yeah. equivalent of you've got some water and you put a thermometer in it, and that gives you a really accurate reading. And it's just like, okay, well, they put a methane-ometer somewhere. And then that perfectly got the amount of methane. And then they're just reading us the reading of it. So that that just one thing that's good to know and hard to know is just what's the method by which some study was done, including when it's, when it's giving data, you know, and how, how direct like how close to direct perception is that versus how much is it, you know, this is something that itself is quite speculative and where there may be wrong assumptions. And this comes up with things like average temperature, you know, global temperatures where you just tend to think, oh yeah, well, the earth just has a thermometer and we took the temperature and it's, oh, well, no, it's, that's actually really hard to do. And you have all these different weather stations and it's a real effort to even get that kind of data, and then let alone you're talking about data from the past, and how do you get that? And yeah, I I'd, I would just generally wish that there's more evidence about methodology, and it's a good it's a good reminder to us to when we're talking about data, to be able to explain where it came from and what level of confidence we have in it and why. Don, next story.
0: Yeah, I really like this one. So the Guardian, uh. The newspaper has updated its style guide in order to have terms that more accurately in its conception describe environmental crises facing the world. And so some quintessential examples are that climate change is going to be replaced or it should be preferred to uh, uh, should be replaced with preferred terms like climate emergency, climate crisis or climate breakdown. Breakdown's an interesting one. Uh, And then global heating is favored over global warming. And the kind of summary quote from their their editor-in-chief was that we want to ensure we are being scientifically precise while also communicating clearly with the readers on this very important issue. And I actually support this on precisely the same grounds. I think climate change is, as you've pointed out, a sloppy term. And climate emergency actually commits them to something specific in it. And it has a real contrast since there's definitely climate emergency deniers. Um, Although note one of their other changes is that climate science denier should now be used to replace climate skeptic. But I mean, if I had to guess, I'd have to say that like this is so blatantly biased that it will have the opposite of its intended effect, that it's subtle bias is always more dangerous than obvious bias because it's harder to guard against but I definitely support uh, using very clearly loaded terminology or at least more precise terminology.
1: Yeah. the So I, I actually wrote about this a little bit on Twitter because Stuart Brand, who's an interesting guy, the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog, which Steve Jobs mentioned in his famous Stanford speech, Brand is an interesting guy because he's been at, on different, parts of the environmental movement or in different parts of the environmental movement. And he posted something about how he thought this was oversimplifying things. And then I I responded. I forget exactly what I wrote, but I mentioned that what I like to try to do is I like to just try to come up with really clear terminology that captures the different kinds of cause and effect relationships that people agree on and then you can use different magnitudes so for instance i'll talk about okay co2 levels that's a that's a thing that okay we can agree on that that's something that matters we can talk about rising co2 levels and then we can talk about warming influence okay what's the warming influence of rising co2 levels and then people can say it's a, you know, they could say it's an accelerating warming influence or a decelerating warming influence or, you know, a catastrophic warming influence, but it's, but they actually have to just talk clearly about your, the, the terminology is really capturing known things. And then part the things that need to be argued for, you need to make clear, you can't just build them into the terminology. You need to actually argue for them or have some modification, like, you know, catastrophic warming Influence. And so what what these guys want to do is they just want to build in the most extreme uh, conclusion, but build it into the baseline terminology. So to just act like, well, to discuss this issue is to adopt a particular theory of it. And there is, you know, you can talk about that. I think you can with something like uh, evolution, or you can do it when when things are really established in a certain way. You can build them into uh, into your conceptual vocabulary, but you have to really establish them. And even, even uh, with, well, with, I mean, evol- evolution. I don't know the the specifics of of to what degree what different aspects of evolution are, are established. But it seems good to you know to describe kind of the history. But even there, you run into difficulties because you're talking about okay, well, we know that the sort of life forms evolve in a certain way from simpler to more complex and stuff like that. But then within that, there are probably lots of different uh, accounts in certain ways. And so you don't want to necessarily, you don't want to just equate evolution with one particular interpretation uh, of it. So this is the, I mean, the worst is just is, is importing moral terminology like a, a crisis or emergency. I mean, that's just totally blending together science and then morality and then just saying oh well if you if you don't agree with me about the climate emergency then you're against science
0: well and there, i think a relevant part of the context alex so like even if you say certain science is settled like evolution which i agree with when you're trying to impose policies like i think th- then you can't close off and like it's it's just in a different category of saying the science is settled among scientists versus the science t- science is settled among scientists and therefore we're going to impose a bunch of policies on you like if you're going to base policy on something then you have to be able to contest the science because something's going to be forced upon you whereas if it's just scientists like I don't I'm not going to base any of my life choices on evolution if that's not my field or if it's not relevant to my field so it's not it, it's not important that I understand the evidence for it in the same way Whereas if you're going to uh, impose something on everyone, I think like that it, you have to be objective to them about what the evidence is.
1: Yeah, good point. Stefan, next story.
2: Uh, U.S. Representatives uh, Bill Flores, a Republican of Texas, and Peter Welch, a, a Democrat of Vermont, have introduced the Food and Fuel Consumer Protection Act of 2019. Uh, And that bill seeks to limit ethanol blending to 9.7% of the total volume of gasoline projected to be sold in the coming year. So as most people should know, uh, the United States government requires uh, refiners to blend gasoline with ethanol to a certain degree. And this bill wants to limit that to 9.7%. So the EPA earlier proposed to increase that threshold to 15% every year, which was criticized by the refining industry and, of course, appreciated by the farmers and ethanol producers. And uh, so why this 9.7%, someone might ask. So the bill explicitly talks about what's called the ethanol, ethanol blend wall of 10%. And that is supposed to be a threshold beyond which Uh, you know, regular cars could be damaged by the fuel because ethanol has a more corrosive nature compared to gasoline without blended ethanol in it. And uh, so that is considered the, the ethanol blend rule. So they want to make sure that this doesn't happen. And I think this is actually not that good an argument against this because the main reason why it's, Why ethanol is accepted as an alternative fuel is that it's supposedly carbon neutral. So, you know, you build a bunch of crop plants and then you ferment them into ethanol. And so when you burn that ethanol, the same amount of CO2 is emitted as was sucked in by the plants when they grew. And uh, so this has some challenges because you you have, you know, much more input than just the... uh, than just the uh, crop plants into that you have fertilizers and pesticides and so on technology, so you might end up with more uh, CO two emissions than than uh, just the tailpipe emissions. But that's sort of the political reason or, or the the general reason given for for the ethanol as a as an alternative fuel. But the political importance of this is, of course, the the corn ethanol agricultural interests in America. And that is, you know, an, um, favoritism, uh, similar to something like, uh, you know, the production tax credit for wind turbines, and so on. And that should be opposed on economic grounds and freedom grounds. And uh, so, the corrosion issue itself might have merits. I don't, I don't know enough about this yet to make a good judgment whether ten percent is actually uh, the, the correct blend wall. But it leaves out all of the, you know, really good arguments, which is, you know, cost, economic scalability and economic freedom, of course, of the individual to choose the right fuel for their car. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, if, if you know, if we could make climate change from fossil fuel emission from CO2 emissions would be a real threat. And, you know, ethanol would just make the cars a little bit more expensive Uh, But would save the world, that wouldn't be relevant, right? So, from that perspective, it's not a really good argument. But the bill is sort of a half measure and it essentially says that, oh, yeah, at 9.7%, we are good. That's okay. So, 9%, so almost 10% of ethanol forced into the gasoline by government mandate, that's okay. Beyond that, it's not okay, but below that, that's great. So I, I don't find this a very convincing argument. So it's sort of giving up the moral high ground and, you know, fighting a losing fight.
1: Now, isn't, I mean, isn't part of the justification of ethanol that some amount of it helps prevent
2: engine knock? Uh, I've read that argument. Uh, I'm not sure that it is it is necessary for that. And I'm, I'm not sure that's the cheapest alternative.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure also what what percentage but it. it's just it's just this kind of thing where it's just very problematic that you have you know specific people saying oh this exact percentage is the right percentage that we should uh, mandate it versus yeah why are you why are you doing that at all i mean if it's to stop engine knock then obviously consumers are going to want that and then mm-hmm. if it's uh, you know if it makes things cheaper then that's a benefit, but it's just so it's just such a politicized issue in part because of the it's just connections to a lot of uh perceived at least farm votes, although I remember when I was in uh let's see in Iowa for the republican caucus in it was in twenty fifteen maybe it was in early twenty sixteen but I think it was in twenty fifteen and Ted Cruz was speaking there, and he said just very straightforwardly. I'm against ethanol subsidies, and he got a really, a really good reception. I mean, there's something just as straightforward and honest about it that people responded to. So maybe that's a model for some people. Don, what's your next story?
0: So whenever the EPA proposes a regulatory change, one of the things it's supposed to do is show that the benefits will exceed the costs. But one of the ways it's traditionally assessed the benefits has been to assume as effectively that there's no safe level of emissions or that it's beneficial every kind of incremental reduction, even below what it considers safe levels. And this so this came up with the uh Obama administration's clean power plan, which was, I mean, effectively a, a ban on coal. And supposedly this was a regulation aimed at fighting climate change. But if you looked into the EPA's justification, virtually all of the benefits that they were showing came from the so-called co-benefits of reducing fine particulate matter. And most of those alleged benefits came from reducing it below what the EPA currently classifies as safe. And so now the Trump administration Um, is going to release its final alternative that's intended to replace the clean power plan called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, or ACE. And it's apparently, at least according to the New York Times, going to include a new methodology that is not going to give this sort of credit for kind of infinite reduction in emissions. And the way the New York Times describes it is the proposed methodology would assume that there is little to no health benefit of making air any cleaner than what the law requires. And of course, this is framed by the New York Times and Greens as them changing the methodology in order to make it easier to pollute. But in reality, uh, from what I've seen so far, I've not seen the final rules. Um, It looks like it's an effort to be more scientific about measuring the costs and benefits of environmental regulations rather than just this kind of default thing that no matter how how expensive we make energy and how much we reduce emissions, that's just a good thing across the board.
1: Yeah, my my sense is it's definitely a big improvement. And just just in general, in people's thinking, the health benefits of having more affordable energy are just not factored in. I had a thought the other day, I was thinking, oh, is this, it was in connection with the point about solar and wind making American uh, energy more expensive, which is, is, has there been anyone who's done a study on premature deaths due to solar and wind mandates, I mean, insofar as you can tie that to decreased standard of living, people being poorer, people having, you know, less access to heating. Uh, have you guys heard of any? I mean, it'd be it's a difficult kind of thing to do, but it's it's at least a dynamic you should study. Is what what I mean? How many people are dying earlier because you made energy more expensive than it could have been?
0: I mean, they certainly could do studies that were of the quality of the, you know, studies c- claiming that fossil fuels are killing a lot of people. I mean, the, these things are inherently hard to measure, but because that's not particularly interesting to many of the people, it's not likely to get funded, or at least I've not seen anything along those lines. But yeah, I agree. It would be it a, a dynamic that one would want to know in order to really assess these alternatives,
2: Stefan. I've heard of uh, so this infrasound issue with wind turbines. So allegedly, some uh, type of sound they emit with a low frequency could be stressful to humans. You know that you don't perceive directly, but that has an impact on you. Um, I don't know how valid that is. Another thing that I've read about was a decrease in uh, property value next to wind turbines. So but that's that's the kind of thing that varies a lot by region. So in a hiking area, maybe wind turbines uh, or in a pristine area, wind turbines are decreasing your property value more than, you know, in other environments. But yeah, I, I've not seen any like high high quality stuff that I could verify.
1: Okay. Well, if any, any listeners have anything along these lines, uh, let us know. Okay. Stefan, next story.
2: Uh, so let me give you the headline um, as if I was a climate alarmist uh, type and exaggerating a lot. so the us uh, has the least drought in history right now. And that's not entirely true, of course, but uh, so this this is based on a blog entry by Roger Puker Jr, who is uh, I think, an economist. Uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And he comments a lot about um, climate issues. And so he bases his assessment on the the drought monitor, which is, uh, you know, made by government agencies. And it essentially provides maps of how much area uh, of the United States is currently in drought. And last week, um, so the, the time span goes since 2000. So it's a relatively short time span. This is why the historic record is not that impressive. Um, But so last week, over 90% of the United States area were not in drought, which is a record uh, in this time span. And um, more interestingly, the trend uh, of areas not in drought is upwards since 2000 systematically. So, the United States, contrary to what you would get from the headlines in the news over the last years or two, is not experiencing more drought, uh, quite the opposite. So the drought is increasing recently. And um, so that was that was last week, and, and the trend is, is relatively consistent. Um, and I want to grab this opportunity to talk about problems I have with how these issues like droughts are communicated in the media and by some alleged experts. So um, so we also see this in pollution trends where you see something like, oh, more and more counties are out of compliance with uh, the regulatory framework or something like this, right? And you don't get the big picture because in these articles and news stories, mm-hmm. um, they tend to focus on one event or a short-term trend, and then they extrapolate this and ask an expert, oh, how is climate change impacting this negatively, for example? And uh, part of this, I believe, is that there's a narrative out, particularly not necessarily by the scientists, but by the activists that are telling us something like uh, what Bill McKibben often said was, oh, you can literally experience the climate change out there, you know, when it's particularly hot in Texas. You can literally experience this. And this is, of course, literally impossible, right? As a human being, you cannot experience this. You cannot, you know, experience the last summer season and then compare that with the summer seasons of the 1980s. There's no way for you to do that. You need sophisticated um, sensors and record keeping to, you know, find out the average nuances and changes over time. And you can experience that. And, um, you don't get the long-term context from these news stories. So when there's a wildfire in California, for example, which was, you know, recently dramatically the case, then you get something, Oh yeah. Climate change is, you know, making things drier and then you get more fires and, and more and bigger fires and so on. And, you know, this kind of data that PLK provided shows the big picture trend. So America is actually experiencing, uh, a non-drought phase right now, and a a trend to less drought, right? And we need to rely on abstract and non-intuitive data. And that's very difficult for human beings, right? Because we have a relatively short attention span and and cannot compare climate today with climate in the 1980s from our memories. So we need to look at this, this abstract data. And what I find particularly bad is that news reporters do not or rarely do provide this long-term full big picture and full context to us. And, and that's, you know, we, Don talked about the Guardian's language choice, and this is, of course, not helping. But, I mean, if you get the more information in the correct context – You know, you can still have a different opinion on that, but at least that these basic facts, we need to get straight. And otherwise we will be doomed to make very bad decisions. And, you know, elections will depend on who can make a certain perception reality in, in, you know, the the election cycle. And that's, I think that's very bad long-term and for understanding of reality and in the climate issue, we can clearly see that. So people, you know have all these uh, polls and surveys of of likely voters and they get to certain conclusions, but they are not getting there because they know the full context and the big picture and the trends like this drought trend that I mentioned. They get to these on, you know, sort of feeling, instinct and narrative uh, from the headlines. So and then that,
1: what 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 could we create that would be a good go-to reference on these things
2: uh so one good reference is um our data page from the more case right now that already exists that's industrialprogress.com slash mcff data that's uh that's the latest so you get some big picture uh data there uh okay pioki is doing a good job i think with many of the issues so he's He's uh, basically focused on the economic side of things. But yeah, we, we can, I think CIP is doing something on it. I think we could do more and should do more on it. And uh, well, referencing things like that is a start, but we, I think we could also establish some some more big picture data view on that, similar to the data pitch for the moral case of fossil fuels.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to think about what are the, I don't know, 30, like the 30 running sets of data that you would want to have. And then at least for some of them, if not all of them, there are going to be qualifications about, okay, these are issues with the methodology. Even with the, let's say with the temperature records, you have issues of, will those get changed over time? And you you can see the, the same agency will have a different account of the 1940s several decades later, that's more conducive to the idea that, oh, the 1940s, wasn't as warm as it seemed at the time. And it's much warmer now versus what, you know, what people thought about it in the 1970s or 1980s. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, so let's make that a project to think about what would be, what what would be the best big picture data set? To, uh, to track, and then what would you need included along with it? Don, what's your next story?
0: It's hard to believe that things could be getting worse in Venezuela, but they are indeed getting worse. This time, the news is that one of the most oil-rich countries in the world is suffering from some of the longest gas lines in the world. And uh, right now, in certain parts of the country, drivers have been waiting up to 24 hours in lines to fuel up. And this has gone on for days, where some people have not even been able to make it to work, or you know they've been trying, you know, waiting for the lines to die down for four days. And um, the this is attributed right now to the combination of U.S. sanctions and then decaying refineries in Venezuela, and so they don't have the cash to import key ingredients they need to keep up production, and in particular, they need uh, stuff that dilutes the The really thick oil that they have, so it can run through the pipelines to refineries, and as a result of not having this now, um their state run oil company is operating at somewhere around ten to fifteen percent of its capacity, and I think like at the highest level, I think this makes your point or goes to your point, Alex, that nature doesn't give us usable resources that we have to take the raw materials from nature and make them usable, and one of the things we're seeing in Venezuela is that policy is crucial. It makes a life and death difference to whether we are able to transform raw materials into usable resources. And the thing that's most striking to me is just how little people are asking, like, how did this happen? What what policy lessons can we draw from how a once wealthy country with every reason to think that it can become even more, more wealthy has now disintegrated this much? And basically what you've gotten instead of really looking at the policy lessons is you get vague, albeit I'm sympathetic, to just claims that, oh, well, it's socialism. And then you get the left saying, well, it's not real socialism. And nobody really taking seriously, like, no, this is a phenomenon that is really important to understand down to its roots so that we can avoid making those same mistakes.
1: Agreed. Is What do you think is the best analysis that exists right now on this?
0: Uh, well, it's actually something that I'm searching for, so I don't have an answer offhand. I mean, there's been things that, uh, I've encountered who did it that Cato had something good a few years ago, the Cato Institute, um, on really trying to break down the particular policies, but I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that. Cause I, I don't think, cause part of what you have to do is not just lay out the narrative of this happened, this happened, this happened, but all right, it can we really attribute it to these policies versus, you know, what are the competing explanations? And I haven't seen anything that I think would give somebody who doesn't already have a view that freedom is crucial to prosperity, a compelling uh, case, but uh, I hope, hopefully one is out there.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's just, I mean, this is, it's happening right now in the world. And it's, you know, particularly when you have a case of a country that, you know, that was in a certain state and then got much, much worse without it. And it's not like there's just some storm that wiped out the whole place. And even if when a storm wipes out a lot, that says something about the state of the country, because you don't have the storm wiping out the United States or some significant part of the United States. I mean, in general, there's just almost no serious interest in the phenomenon of poverty in the world, but then particularly when you go from prosperity to poverty, that's something we should pay acute attention to. And one of the reasons we don't is because it has lessons that are counter to the recommendations of today's uh, establishment. Okay. Stefan, let's take one more story from you.
2: Uh, The energy information administration estimates that 2019 will be a very strong year for U.S. wind capacity additions, and the months of December will be by far the strongest. And the reason is the phase-out of the production tax credit for wind power, which provides a financial incentive for every kilowatt hour produced during the first 10 years of a wind project, and uh, developers are now making sure to start the formal process for the projects by the end of this year to claim eligibility for the uh, production tax credit. And uh, what I found very interesting in the statistic by the Energy Information Administration was that a very similar situation was happening in 2012, um, which is a current record holder year for wind addition uh, capacity additions. Uh, and that also was a phase out year. The production tax credit then retroactively was uh, reactivated later on. But there was also a run on projects to just get the financial incentive um, for the wind projects. And so contrary to the narrative that wind is often the competitive uh, source of power already, uh, this just shows how dependent wind projects are uh, on government incentives. So after 2012, in 2013, Wind capacity additions totally collapsed, like a tiny fraction of the 2012 additions, and then you know it restarted when the when the incentive was uh, renewed again, and uh, then hovered around. And now 2019 will again be shooting up just to get in into the into the taxpayer money, um, and so the this production tax credit collapse doesn't even take into account something like a renewable energy portfolio standard, uh, which many states have established, which actually mandates a certain share of renewables by a certain uh, date. And, uh, you know, this is a non-monetary mandate, but still these capacity additions depend crucially on the per kilowatt hour subsidy, right? So whenever someone proclaims that oh uh, this coal power plant or nuclear power plant cannot compete with the cheap renewables because they have become so cheap, I, I have to roll my eyes because I know this is not a market decision. This is not, you know, people looking for the for the you know best offer by power sources. This is, you know, totally government controlled and incentivized, and without the incentives. Uh, the demand for these things usually collapses.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at, I'm seeing in your notes. It's really funny to see because you see 20, 2012. guess like 2010 is at about five. I mean, this is uh, mm-hmm. you know, gigawatts. But then, then 2011 is at seven, and 2012 is at about 13 and a half, and then 2013 is at one. Yeah. So you just see that it's, you have seven, like think about the math here. You have seven in 2011, and then 2012 and 2013 add up to about 14, you know, which divided by two is seven. So it's like those average out the same. But you could say in 2012, oh my gosh, we're really on an exponential path. I mean, imagine where it'll be in 2013.
2: Yeah.
1: And then, well, now we see the reality of what it'll be in 2013. This just, by the way, the, Thinking of this term exponential that has become a term of abuse reminds me of an article I mentioned earlier by Mark Mills about the new energy economy and exercise in magical thinking. That's a really good paper from the Manhattan Institute. And one issue he goes into in some depth is just the difference between the different, you know, digital computing revolution and then, you know, prospective energy revolutions. And one point I take from it, is that he points out that the computing revolution, a huge part of it was figuring out how to do more computing with less energy, because if they hadn't figured that out, then you just, it would just be, it would just take huge, huge, huge um, amounts of energy. And he points out that it's, it's not that there's the same, um, there's unfortunately not the same kind of opportunity to, you know, figure out how to heat water just 10 times more efficiently or move a vehicle 10 times as efficiently um and thus well and, and so w- what we really need is you know we really need you're not going to have the same kind of dynamic uh with an energy technology at least not with any of the existing ones maybe you can get some other thing or maybe some form of nuclear that ultimately becomes super cheap but ultimately we have to generate um you know, we need to generate lots of energy. Actually, one one point this reminds me of also that he, he goes into is a point about efficiency, because he, he has a really interesting discussion of efficiency and how he discusses how generally the more efficient a technology gets in terms of using energy, the more people adopt it, and then the more energy gets used by that kind of technology. And I found the most fascinating example to be computers, because he talks about how computers use way more energy overall than they used to. And yet computers have become what millions of times more energy efficient. So that's an example where something becomes millions of times more energy efficient. And yet it still uses more energy over time because when it uses a lot less energy, then you can have it do all sorts of interesting things. And he he makes the point that human uh, policymakers think of energy efficiency in terms of Human beings will use less, whereas human beings think of energy efficiency in terms of this will the proper way, this will allow me to get more out of life. So, definitely recommend that paper.
0: Well, I wanted to say something about that general point, Alex, because one of the things that I find really striking in how we talk about the role that like wind and solar will play is that it's like always i think this goes to the energy efficiency point right it's we're going to continue using the doing the same things and we'll be able to use less energy to do them and then all of the projections about wind and solar it's all based on like replacing our current energy usage versus like we want to be able to use significantly more energy which we can do the more affordable it is and the more efficient we are and like like that that should be the goal and that that's what if you're going to have a uh, an evolving energy sphere with better sources of energy, they should be able to support dramatically more energy use, not rely on us to stagnate.
1: yeah, and it's a giveaway that that it's not at all plausible that they'll surpass the current ones, and thus it's just they're just all claiming, oh well, they're somehow magically going to do exactly the same. I mean, you can imagine if there was some someone who's like claiming a different kind of computer chip, and then all they could ever claim were kind of far-fetched claims that, oh, well, we can match silicon. You'd think, why? Why are you doing this? And is it really going to be as good as silicon, or is it just going to be not not nearly as good? Because there are reasons to use silicon, and that's really really effective. And so, usually, you don't come up with a new thing that's exactly the same goodness as the old thing. And so, but one one. A related point here is just that energy as we know it is is fossil fuel energy so we you know we think of cheap plentiful reliable energy but our our very concept of cheap plentiful reliable energy is based on what the fossil fuel industry is able to produce and you know has, has actually figured out how to produce and it's it's that's a certain level of efficiency of production and then a certain level of versatility in terms of just different forms of energy for different purposes and it's It's obviously a really hard thing to do it's a real achievement that's why one big reason why others haven't uh haven't done it and thus there's not a reason to suspect oh well, something else could do it exactly as well, like today's level is some magical uh Baseline, and then it's oh well, of course something else can do it as so, well. Like, usually, things are very different in their ability to accomplish uh, goals. So the, the idea of a perfect substitute for fossil fuels is far fetched. It's actually more plausible that oh well, we could find something at least for some purpose that's way better at certain things. But solar and wind do not appear to be it, except for people with this exponential nonsense. But that that's part of the reason why I recommend what Mark Mills. Uh, talks about. Okay, that is it for today's show. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email Don and he'll share with the rest of us at, don at industrial progress.net. Also, if you'd like a great speaker for an event or if you'd like some help with your messaging, if you're an organization with some high stakes messaging challenges, those are both things we do. We provide great speakers and messaging. Email Don at, don at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we're going to do a grand experiment. And by we, I mean Don and Stefan, because I'm not going to be here. I am going to be doing a bunch of speaking on the road. So we will try having them do Power Hour. I think the first Power Hour without Alex Epstein, if it's terrible, then we won't publish it. But if it's good, (laughs) if it's decent, then we will publish it. So that's motivation to these guys to uh, entertain you. So I will be back in two weeks, uh, but they will be back next week, hopefully. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.